Amen. Well, take your Bibles, if you would, this morning. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. If you're a guest here with us this morning, it's our normal habit to walk through books of the Bible. We are walking through the book of Philippians and uh, coming uh, quickly to the end. We are this morning in Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. A very familiar passage of scripture where I have been very excited about sharing with you this morning a text which I think will be, uh, if we hear it and receive it, uh, quite helpful for us today. You know, one of the great passions of my life and one of the reasons I think God has called me into pastoral ministry is to help people to discover this simple truth, that there is no area of our lives in which the gospel does not have something to say. There is no area of our lives in which the gospel does not have something to say. The gospel is not simply good news for our future. Listen, the gospel is good news for our present. The gospel is good news of of great joy, and it is not that all of that is reserved for us in heaven. Certainly the fullness of that is reserved for us, but the gospel is good news of great joy right now. There are too many people who have believed that they have received the gospel while at the same time have only received a message for the future and it has not affected their daily lives. And I want you to know this morning that when the gospel is truly received, new life begins that moment. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And although that is not an immediate transformation, it is the beginning of a process in which God is molding us into his image In which day by day, moment by moment, he is changing us and helping us to experience his joy and his peace, his love and his kindness, experiencing more of the fruit of the Spirit. The truths of the gospel should be changing us moment by moment. Because of that, it should be no surprise to us in a book like Philippians, which is so gospel-centered, which is really pleading with the church to gather together in a gospel partnership. Philippians 1.27, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. A book in which Paul, in more than any other book, is constantly pointing us back to the word gospel, gospel. It should be no surprise to us, knowing the practical implications of the gospel. That it is in this book that Paul gives us maybe some of the most practical instruction of all. It is in this book in which Paul speaks to one area of our lives in which I would venture to say, to some degree or another, every single one of us battle. It is the battle of anxiety. I'm sure you're aware of this, but we live in a world plagued by anxiety. Surveys tell us that 77% of people in America struggle with some physical symptom which is caused by stress. They're called psychosomatic symptoms. They are real physical symptoms that are not caused by real physical problems. They are real physical symptoms caused by emotional problems, most of them caused by stress. Do you know that we spend, as Americans, $201 billion a year on mental health medications? Surveys also tell us that 25% of Americans, one out of every four Americans, is taking some medication in order to deal with anxiety. And most surprising to me, this just came out at the end of last year, I read an article that said 30% of American teen girls have an anxiety disorder. 30% of American teen girls have an anxiety disorder. And And I would say there is probably a correlation between the amount of anxiety we have and the amount of social media that we're involved in. 
The truth is, is how connected we are has a lot of positives. It has a lot of negatives as well. And I think the constant message that it is pouring into our lives is not giving us more peace. It is giving us more anxiety. We live in a world plagued by anxiety. But think about this with me. Doesn't it just make sense that in a world that is paralyzed by anxiety, there should be one group of people obviously unanxious, conspicuously unanxious. Doesn't it seem that those who have received the message of good news of great joy, the promise and the hope of eternal life, the awareness that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1, the God who is working all things for his glory and our good, Romans 8, wouldn't it just seem that the people that have that message, who have been changed by that news, would be a people remarkably unanxious? But you know as well as I do, There doesn't seem to be a massive difference between those in the church and those outside of the church in the way in which we're battling anxiety. And that's exactly Paul's point in Philippians 4. He's talking us over and over about the message of the gospel and then comes to Philippians 4 in a very practical manner and addresses in a very matter-of-fact way the issue of anxiety. If you're there at Philippians 4, say amen. Listen to what it says in Philippians 4. I'm going to start in verse 4, which was our text for last week, and read through verse 7. The Lord is saying to us, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness, that means your kindness, your gentleness, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but... In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now, I love the simplicity and the directness of those statements. Now, knowing the context of the book of Philippians, I would say that simplicity and directness might surprise us a bit. Here's a group of people that have every reason to not rejoice, to not display a gentleness, a kindness, a reasonableness, and to be absolutely overwhelmed by the anxieties of life. They are facing extreme external persecution for their faith in Jesus. We know this from the last verses of chapter 1. They are in a church that has all kinds of relational conflict and experiencing division. We know that from chapter 2. They're in a church that is being ravaged by false doctrine, which is tearing apart families. We know that in chapter 3. So externally, internally, there's all kinds of things going on. We know from the end of chapter 1 that the same kind of suffering that Paul experienced, which was public beatings, shame, and being thrown into prison, were the exact things that they're encountering right now. And yet, in a way that might seem a bit insensitive to us, Paul says, listen, it doesn't matter the circumstances. I want you to know three things. You need to rejoice always. You need to make sure that you're displaying gentleness and kindness. And you need to be anxious for nothing. Now, I think it could be that when we come to these verses, and these are familiar to almost all of them, we could have a tendency to dismiss these verses specifically because of how simplistic they are. We could say, well, well, Pastor Josh, you, you don't understand my situation and the things that I'm going through. And 
my mother was like this, and my grandmother was like this, and everybody's been like this, and my family, and I've inherited this, and we have a tendency maybe to think, well, there couldn't be enough here to help me navigate anxiety. But maybe, listen, maybe, I'm going out on a limb here, maybe the God who created you and knows you better than you know yourself and understands you better than any psychiatrist, a psychologist could ever know you, maybe that God really believed that the most helpful thing would be the simplest thing. Could it just be that everything that we're reading and all that we're trying to discover about the nature of anxiety is just making our anxiety worse? I mean, I, I can give you testimony to this in my own life. I've spent a lot of time uh, learning about stress and anxiety uh, and adrenaline, you know, research for other people, and uh, just trying to understand how this all works. And one of the things, <laughs> this guy's really laughing, one of the things I've read a lot about is the effect of adrenaline on our lives, that as we are anxious and stressed, that our adrenaline increases, and we get into this heightened adrenaline, which is a God-created response to something terrible, but we often have it when something not that terrible is going on. And then I was reading about all the symptoms of adrenaline, so you can start to discover it. And one of the things is your hands get really cold, and there's all these physical symptoms. And so what happens is you're trying to keep your adrenaline down, and then your hands get cold, and you start to freak out because your hands are cold. Then you're trying to think about what you can do to get your adrenaline down, and in the midst of that, your adrenaline gets higher. And I just wonder if maybe all of that overthinking is making things just a tad bit worse. What if God not only gave us a command to not be anxious, which it is a direct command, but what if he gave us a simple process that when applied to our life, not only leads us to greater Christ-likeness, but actually does help us win the battle for anxiety? What I want to say to you, I think that's exactly what God is doing in Philippians chapter 4. So, so can I plead with you this morning as we walk through this simple process? I believe God has given us a four-step process directly from verses 6 and 7 to help us know how to battle anxiety. I want to plead with you uh, to write this down. And if you're sitting by somebody who's not writing this down and you know they struggle with this, just nudge them. Give them a pen, a highlighter, a mascara, something, and tell them to write this down, all right? I want to walk us through this process of battling anxiety directly from Scripture. The, the first point is this. Listen, see anxiety for what it really is. See anxiety for what it really is. We have to start here. This really matters. Because once we come to understand that there is a part of anxiety in, in really the very root that has a positive to it. It just goes a little bit too far. Look at the word there. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Now that word anxious is where we start to discover what it is that Paul actually means. Because this word is used throughout scripture in two different ways. One is a positive and one is a negative. The exact same word. As a matter of fact, Paul has already used it in Philippians chapter 2 in a positive manner. In Philippians 2, 19 and 20, Paul says this about Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. So that I too may be cheered by news of you. Philippians 2.20, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Do you know that is the exact same word that Paul uses in Philippians 4.6 when he says, do not be anxious. Timothy is genuinely concerned for the welfare of the believers in Philippi. And the reason they long to see Timothy come, and the reason Paul eventually longs to see Timothy there, is because Timothy has a genuine concern for the believers in Philippi. It is a very positive statement, but it's the exact same word that's being used. Paul does it in 1 Corinthians 12, 25. 
He's pleading with the Corinthian church, and he says, I don't want there to be any division in the body, but I want the members to have care for one another. Exact same word. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, Paul talks about his own self, and he says this, apart from all the other things, having just talked about his suffering, there is the daily pressure on me and my anxiety, my concern for all the churches. Paul says, I have this external suffering that I'm going through, but what's even more difficult than that is I have this constant weight in my heart where I feel for the people in the church. Listen, we have testimony here from Paul and from Timothy that a pastor that is called by God, walking in the spirit of God, is always feeling a deep concern for the people of God. And what it reminds us of is this. It is not only good, but it is right and godly to be deeply concerned with certain things in our lives. There are areas in which we should be concerned with godly people are concerned about important issues. You know, I, I think we think sometimes that the opposite of anxiety is kind of this carelessness or apathy. And we, we can, I, I won't describe it, but we can put this character in our mind of a person who nothing bothers. They're just not bothered by anything. They're very laid back and nothing seems to phase them. And what I would say is this, that's not exactly the opposite of anxiety. That's not exactly the model of what we're going for because the truth is, is Paul knows that there are some issues that we need to be deeply concerned with. You need to be concerned with the spiritual health of your family, your spouse, and your children. You should feel this deeply. You should feel deeply the responsibility to lead your children to trust and follow Christ as much as you can. You should feel deeply for the spiritual well-being of your spouse. You should feel deeply about your finances, and you should be concerned that you're using them in a way that honors Christ because you will give an account for the way in which you spend your money. And right now, the way you spend your money is a direct reflection upon your heart and so if you're not being wise with your money, it is revealing something about your heart that should concern you. You should be concerned about your diligence in school or your diligence in work. You should be concerned by the state of our nation. You should be concerned even in many ways about your own physical health, doing everything you can to make sure you're eating right and exercising and taking care of the body that God has given you. All of these are absolute legitimate concerns. And there are some people who are not concerned enough. That maybe because of their disposition, that nothing seems to bother them, but I want to tell you something. The fact is, is that godly people care deeply about a lot of issues, and you should be deeply concerned about the things in your life. I always think about a situation a few years ago when Andrew and I were moving from one house to another. We have, I believe, lived in four houses in our married life, and two of our moves, uh, one of them was when Andrea was seven months pregnant, the other one was she was nine months pregnant, meaning that we moved into the house and four days later we had a baby. My timing has always been impeccable in these things. And I remember in our first move that uh, she was seven months pregnant and uh, we had a date in which we needed to be out of the house, and it was getting closer and closer. I was an extremely busy season at the church, and uh, here she is with uh, two little kids, I believe, at the time, and another one that was about to appear. And I came home one night, and it was kind of had reached that point where it was feeling a bit overwhelming. And I, in my calming and reassuring way, because I have such that gentle, calming spirit about me, I looked at her and I said, honey, just don't worry. It's all going to get done. And she looks at me and says, Yes. Because I'm going to do it. <laughs> she was right. I had this thought that it was all going to get taken care of, and it was. 
because she was going to work really hard and do it. That's a situation in which I might have been able to demonstrate a little more concern than I did. There is a reason to have right and good and godly concern. But here's the question. What is the difference between good godly concern and ungodly anxiety? Because Timothy had good godly concern. But Paul's using the same word to preach about an ungodly anxiety. What is the difference? Here it is. Listen carefully. Anxiety is your concern without God in the picture. Anxiety is your legitimate concern without God in the picture. Anxiety is when you see all of your concerns, but you do not see God. That's the reason I would define anxiety like this, and I would encourage you to write this down. Anxiety is a godless preoccupation with the concerns of life. It's a godless preoccupation with the concerns of life. The root of anxiety almost always is legitimate, godly, right concerns that you're thinking about without God in the picture. They're a godless preoccupation with the concerns of life. Think about that definition with me. Anxiety is godless. It's godless. Because it is assuming that God doesn't care. It is assuming that God is unconcerned. It is assuming that God is unloving. It is, it is assuming that God is not aware of what's going on, or if he is aware that God is unable to take care of what concerns you. When throughout scripture, over and over and over, there are the promises that God knows what is going on in your life. He is aware of what's going on in your life. He is navigating things in your life for his glory and his good. These are absolute promises, meaning that our anxiety is godless. Because it doesn't put God in the middle of our concerns. It's a godless preoccupation. You see, think where a concern turns to an anxiety is when we obsess over it, when we're consumed by it, when we're nervous about it. One of the words that's often used to refer to this is, is to brood, kind of this idea of fretting or agonizing that this concern begins to consume us and it begins to take over us and it begins to manifest itself in physical issues. Why? Because it's so deep and heavy within us. It's godless and it's a preoccupation. It's an unhealthy preoccupation. But listen, it's rooted in the concerns of life. A godless preoccupation with the concerns of life. These are probably legitimate things. You should be legitimately concerned about your finances and your work, your family, your friends. But when those concerns begin to overwhelm you, when they begin to take over your emotions and your mind, and you are not seeing God in the middle of a picture, your general concerns that are good and right have turned into anxiety because God is not in the middle of them. And that's why Paul commands us against it. Now listen very carefully, because Anxiety is not simply a bad disposition. It is not simply you just something you inherited from your mother or father. It is not simply a bad habit. It is not just simply a mental issue that needs to be medicated. There may be a season for that. It is, listen, a sin. And here's the great news. If we can call it what it is, there's hope. There's hope. If this is something you just got from your mom and everybody else has already had it, I don't know if there's much hope for you. But if this is something that is a sin, Jesus Christ died and shed his blood that every sin might be overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if we can call it what it is, we can also believe that there's hope for it. 
This is a godless preoccupation with the concerns of life. And the reason Paul commands us not to do it is because it is a sin. It is revealing that we are practical atheists. And then we believe God has got full control of our future, but he is unable to help us in the right here and now. There's hope. And so we have to see anxiety for what it really is. It is a sin in which there is hope. It is a godless preoccupation with the genuine concerns of life. That's the first thing. The second one is this. I encourage you to write this down. We must not only see anxiety for what it is, we must fight every anxious thought. We must fight every anxious thought. The reason it's important for seeing what it is is because, and I use this word very purposefully, to fight every anxious thought, because we must wage war on our anxieties. We've got to fight this with an incredibly focused battle in which we're determined that we're going to wage war and we are going to win against anxiety. I want you to note the comprehensiveness of this command. He says, but in everything, or I'm sorry, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. And even just move back to verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, but Paul, you don't know what's going on. No, 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 no. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness, your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There is no area in which this type of godless preoccupation, this anxiety, is justified in the eyes of God. And the reason these words are so necessary, and we talked about this last week, is because the Lord knows that we're going to say, but God, you don't understand, but God, but God. And he's saying, listen, what I'm saying is this, there is hope for all of these anxieties. And so he says, in everything by prayer and supplication, do nothing or be anxious about nothing. He's not giving us any room here. He's not saying, well, there's some areas in which it's okay and some areas which is justified. He puts in this verses the big things and the little things. The big things like our children and our health, our marriage, or maybe our lack of marriage, our, our singleness. He puts in here our finances, our work, our conflict. All of those things are things that we need to be concerned about, but things that cannot lead to anxiety. We're not ignoring them. We're just finding a way for God to get in the middle of them. And listen, it's not even just the big things. Because he says that we should not be anxious about anything, he includes the small things. Traffic and inconveniences and irritations and, and disappointments. I mean, there's a lot of things I love about Bogart, Georgia, but the traffic is my favorite. Now, I'll be honest, that Oconee connector is a mess. And that three minutes I have to wait there at that light just really takes it out of me. But I spent the last almost 12 years in Dallas, Texas. Some of you travel to Atlanta every day. God bless you. But do you sense in that traffic sometime where the, the jaw is starting to hurt and the head is starting to hurt and the, the neck is starting to hurt and you don't even realize that you've been all wound up here and there's these big things in life but there's these small things in life and even if we begin to be attuned to it, we'll be amazed at how often anxiety begins to take hold of our life. And what God is commanding in this is for us to look out for it, to see it for what it is, and he's commanding us that we be totally free from all anxiety. There is none allowed. This is so deeply ingrained in our lives. It's just, honestly, for most of us, it's just kind of a part of who, of who we are. This is just kind of the way we function. It's become a part of us that we don't even realize is there, but God wants to remove it. And the goal is to 
find a way to stop every concern before it becomes an anxiety. So how do we do that? How do we take a legitimate concern and stop it before it becomes a godless preoccupation? So we see it for what it is. We fight every anxious thought. We see it. We say we're going to wage war on it. And how do we do that? This is the third one. We take every concern to God. Write that down. Take every concern to God. We see it. We recognize that God gives us the grace to see it. We see it as sin. It needs to be dealt with. And it can be by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We then realize that that is not just a bad habit. I got to fight that. I got to deal with that. I got to do something with that. I'm not going to leave it there. What we do then is this we take every concern to God. He gives us this conjunction here do not be anxious about anything. Well, what do we do then? What do we do instead? But instead of that, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So instead, of letting your concern turn into a godless preoccupation, the opposite of that is taking everything, and that's an important word because it's the little things, it's the big things, no matter what, we take every single concern immediately. At the moment we see it, we take it to the Lord. He gives a few words here. He says prayer and supplication, thanksgiving and request. There are three words that are all used for prayer, prayer and supplication and request. Now, a lot of people make a lot of this, and there might be a heightened sense that's going on here where prayer is, is kind, of, kind of one level, and then supplication really is kind of a begging and a pleading. Request could refer more to just the practical step of giving that specific thing to the Lord. I, I don't think we should read too much into that. I'm not sure that Paul is talking about three different types of prayer. I think what he's simply saying is this, is that every time a concern begins to creep into an anxiety, at that moment, we take that specific thing directly to the Lord. We pray about it. If need be, we beg him to help us in that moment. And every single concern is a request that goes immediately to the Lord. What he's saying is this, is that I want you to get into the habit that every single time, a concern begins to turn into an anxiety when that brooding happens, when that preoccupation happens. It is at that very moment where you choose by faith not to entertain it, but to fight it with the power and grace of God by taking every single one of them to the Lord. You say, well, Josh, how is prayer the antidote to anxiety? Listen to this. This is good. It's because prayer puts God back in the middle of your concern. You see, what happened with your concern? What happened with your concern is you begin to think about your concern, but you didn't think about God. As a result of that, you started waiting to figure out how you're going to figure all this out and navigate this. You begin to be overwhelmed and anxious when what prayer does immediately as the moment that concern comes up is it puts God right where he's supposed to be, which is in the middle of your concern. You put the sovereign God of the universe who loves you more than anyone else loves you, who knows you better than anyone else knows you, who already has everything mapped out for you for your good and his glory you say at this moment i'm going to get god right back in the middle of this and the only way we get god right back in the middle of it is to take it to him in prayer at that moment the goal is to get god right in the middle of your concerns you are taking it to the lord who cares about you who knows you who hears you and who is controlling all things you know i think we can learn a lot from the, the psalms of lament do you know that a third of all the psalms are psalms of lament? 
A few years ago, I did an entire sermon series, 13 weeks on the Psalms of Lament. People were really encouraged. It was great. (laughs) But here's the reason I did it. Listen, does it say something about the nature of our lives that a third of the Psalms are lament? This is why I don't understand why in the church we're always supposed to act like everything is okay and nothing bothers us and we're never hurt and we're never discouraged because a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament where literally you read half of them and you think David has some serious issues going on here. Like this guy gets in a really dark place. But listen, do you know this? Every single Psalm of lament except for one, and I could give you a reason why there's not that one, but listen, every single Psalm of lament begins with this thought that God is against me, that God has forgotten me, that everyone is against me, and every single one except for one ends in a resolution where exactly what he thought, his mind had been changed by the end of the Psalm. Don't look, but write down Psalm 13. It's a perfect example of this. It's one of the best paradigms for a lament. And here's what it shows us. These thoughts come into my mind. I'm done. Everybody's against me. I can't make it. My enemies are going to win over me. What does Paul do? He begins to speak the truth to himself. He begins to take this thing to the Lord. And by the time he's done praying, he's already changed his mind. He's not schizophrenic. He put God in the middle of his concern. And there's something about even talking this through. Uh, As you're talking this through, you start to realize that the words that are coming out of your mouth are godless. And you begin to speak the truth to yourself. And you begin to take these things to the Lord in prayer. And David, without anyone counseling him, has received help from the wonderful counselor who is Jesus Christ. He is a wonderful counselor that as he is talking about all of the difficulties and the pain in his life, he's speaking these things out loud. He's then hearing himself. He's then taking these things to the Lord in prayer. He's speaking the truth back to himself. And by the time he gets done praying, he has resolved this issue in his own heart. That's what the Psalms of Lament teach us, that you can take these things to the Lord in prayer. And you battle them. And in the midst of that battle, God uses this process of speaking the thing, taking it there, then speaking the truth to ourselves and giving it to the Lord. It is that process which God uses to sanctify us, to remind us of the truth, and to remove our anxiety and simply allow it to be a good, godly concern. And look at what he says. He says, in everything by prayer, look at verse 6. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now, here's what I think that means. I don't think it means that in your prayer you're giving thanks. We should give thanks. Absolutely. That's a part of prayer. I don't think that is what he's saying here. I don't think he's saying that a part of our prayer needs to be a lot of thanksgiving, reminding ourselves of all the things God has done. That's great. We need to do that. I just don't think that's the point. I think it's a little bit more subtle than that. When Andrea was diagnosed with um, stage four cancer about five years ago, it was amazing the people that just kind of came out of the woodwork and people from our church and our neighborhood that offered to help us. I got a knock on the door one day. I was home, and uh, a guy from our neighborhood came by. I knew him. He didn't go to our church, but I knew him. And he said, listen, I've been trying to think about what we could do for you, and this was the middle of July, and I don't know what to do. The only thing I know to do is I just want to take care of your yard the whole time that Andrea is sick. Now, this was both good and bad. I knew this guy, and he's not the kind of guy that looked like he could take care of my yard. I'm not trying to stereotype. I'm just saying, if you wanted your taxes done, this was your guy. If you wanted your yard to look great, he, didn't, he wasn't my go-to guy for the yard, okay? So when he, when he came and offered, I, I, didn't, I didn't really, I, I wasn't super confident. By the way, he ended up paying someone to do the yard. It was wonderful. 
But you know what I did? I just thought this is not a moment to argue with this because, listen, I knew this guy well enough to know that if he said he wanted to take care of something, he was going to take care of something. So I didn't argue. I didn't debate. I just said, I can't tell you what a blessing this is. Thank you. And he left, and the yard was taken care of. Here's what I think God means when he says we go to the Lord with thanksgiving. We take our concern, we take it to the Lord, and we say thanks before it's even taken care of because we know the person who's made the promise. We know the person. Say, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. I don't know how this is going to get worked out. And the reality is, you might not take care of this situation the way that I think it needs to be taken care of, but I do know that you are going to take care of it. On this side or the next side, you will navigate this, and you might actually choose to leave this right in the middle of my life and not resolve this concern because you know what's best for me. All I'm going to do is this. Lord, here it is. I'm giving it to you, and I want to go ahead and say, thank you, thank you for the fact that I know you're going to take care of this. Anything less is godless. We recognize it for what it is. We see it. We then fight it, and we fight it by taking every concern to God. I I couldn't help but think while I was uh, preparing this message, these familiar words, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. The needless pain and sorrow we bear when God simply says, bring it to me, trust me with it, believe the truth, and just thank me. I'm going to take care of it. Let me give you the last one and we'll be done. You see it for what it is. You then begin the process of fighting it. You don't leave it. You fight it. You fight it by specifically taking it to the Lord in prayer. And the last one is this. Then you seek first his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom. This has to be a part of the process. See it for what it is. Fight every anxious thought, take every concern to God, and then seek first his kingdom. You say, well, Josh, I don't see that anywhere in the text. It is absolutely all over the context. I've told you over and over, the whole point of the book of Philippians is Philippians 1.27, where Paul is writing to them. Because Paul wants them as a church to be together for the gospel. He wants them to be united on one front, standing, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here's what Paul knows. Paul knows if they are overwhelmed and consumed with ungodly concerns, they cannot at the same time be consumed with godly concerns. You can't be consumed with godless concerns and godly concerns at the same time. So what's Paul's motive in telling them to not be anxious? His motive is this. He wants them to be seeking first the kingdom. But if they're so preoccupied with everything going on in their lives, they're only seeking their kingdom, not God's kingdom. Because it does seem odd at the end of Philippians, in this book on gospel partnership, Paul would bring up this idea of anxiety, but he brings it up because he knows that if you are consumed with this preoccupation of the concerns of life, you will not be consumed with the things of God. So he says, listen, the reason that I want you to deal with your anxiety is because there is a God that has given his son to die for you so your sins could be forgiven, so you could be made a new creation, that you might then go and give your life for something that matters for the kingdom. Because even though many of our anxieties are legitimate, difficult concerns, there are many of them that are not as big as we think we are, they are, and someday we're going to regret we spent so much time seeking the re- resolution to those things and not enough time seeking the kingdom of God. Paul says in Philippians 1.25 that his great ambition for the church is he wants to be with them for their progress and joy in the faith. Do you know anxiety kills your progress and steals your joy? 
So if Paul wants to see them make progress and have joy, like I want to see you make progress and have joy, we got to deal with anxiety because no progress and no joy is found in a preoccupied heart. I think about Matthew 6 where Jesus talks about anxiety and he says, don't worry about your life and what you'll eat and what you'll drink and what you'll put on your body. And at the end of that, he says in Matthew 6, 33, but instead of that, instead of being concerned for all of those things, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and those things will be added unto you. You see, the problem is not that it's just causing you physical symptoms. The problem is not that it's just annoying to everyone around you. The problem is not that it's consuming you. The problem is even deeper than that, is that it's keeping you from doing what God really wants you to be doing. That it is an attack of the enemy to keep you preoccupied with your life so you're not advancing the kingdom of God. So for the sake of your own heart, for the sake of your own life, For the sake of the kingdom of Christ and the church of Jesus Christ, fight every anxious thought, taking it to the Lord so that you might, as a result, seek first his kingdom. Now look at verse 7 and we'll be done. It says, the result of this process, and I believe it's the full process, I see it, I fight it, I take it to the Lord, and I begin to use my energies for the things of the kingdom. It says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, you will not be able to explain the peace that God gives you It will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. What I love about that verse is it says the peace of God will, listen, look at the visual picture. Look at me right here. It will put a guard over the two areas most affected by your anxiety, your heart and your mind. Your heart and your mind. What will happen is this. The very peace of God will put a guard, a wall around your heart. He will put a wall around your mind so that as you are doing battle with this and as you continue to fight, that there will be a peace that is protecting your heart and protecting your mind in Christ Jesus so that you might not only be free from this sin, but effective for the kingdom of God. So let me tell you how we're going to respond this morning. We'll be done. I know we've gone a little bit longer today, but we need this, and here's how we're going to respond. This is not simply a call to do something is a call of an entirely new way of thinking. It is a call of a new process. Of this is happening moment by moment. I see it, I stop it, I fight it, I take it to the Lord, and then I move forward doing something for the kingdom. I don't just get rid of the anxiety. I start doing, God, what do you want me to do? I got these extra energy that I've been using for anxiety. What do you want me to do with it now? You're gonna have so much extra energy. What do you do? We well, you start seeking the kingdom. God, who can I invest in? Wh- whose life can I get involved in? Why, instead of just being consumed with my concerns, how about I get consumed with someone else's concerns? God, where can I use this? So this is new way of thinking. And the way we're going to respond this morning is this. We're going to start right now. Right now. By you taking whatever anxiety you have, and right now in our time of response, bringing it to the Lord. I believe without question some of you are anxious with a genuine concern for your soul because you are not confident that you know Jesus Christ. And if that is you, this is the morning we need to settle that. Some of you have a great weight in your life for a sin. It's a legitimate concern. You need to take it to the Lord. Some of you have some massive areas in your life. And what I want to ask you this morning, let's just respond. Let's come. Let's get on our knees. God, I want to give this to you right now. I want to trust your promises. I want to get up this morning receiving the peace of God. We're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to ask if there is a concern that you need to bring to the Lord right now. Do it. Don't wait right now. Pastors and prayer partners will be here to greet you, a place for you to come and pray. Let's get on our knees, take these things to the Lord, and say, Lord, I want to trust that what you say is true. I want to use my energy for the kingdom of God. I want to trust you with this. Let's do it this morning by his grace. Let's bow our heads and pray.